From St. Louis, Missouri, this is Strangers to Fiction, a podcast all about documentary storytelling. My name is Bill Streeter. And my name is Jacob McIndoller. And this week we watched the 1992 non-narrative documentary film, Baraka. So let's talk about Baraka. And I wanted to start this by telling you a little bit of my background with this film. So you yeah. had not seen this film, so I kind of introduced yeah. it to you. We had a conversation a while ago. I've mentioned it to yeah. you before. Um, we watched so we, a trailer, but yeah. I didn't really know much about it before this week. So, But I want to give you my background on this story a little bit. So yeah. I was like 18, 19 years old, something like that. I just... Uh, Moved back into my parents' house after being a part of the group, which if you're a listener to this podcast and you don't know what that is, uh, I made a documentary called The Group. It's on YouTube. You know, you can find it there. Um, Just moved back into my parents' house and a little bit lost in life, you know, not really knowing what to do with myself. And I had a friend of mine that I had known from high school who had moved away and he came back to visit one time and we met up and he said... uh, I saw this movie. I think you would like it. Gave it to me. I'm almost certain on VHS, you know, because this was probably 95, 96, something like that. Uh, And, you know, his his description was it's a documentary, but you can't really describe it. You can't really explain what it is. You just kind of got to watch it. And I remember taking it home that night and going, you know, I had no enthusiasm about it whatsoever. Popped it in, watched it that night, watched the whole thing, went to bed, woke up early the next day because I had to go to college classes, but woke up extra early so that I could watch it again in the morning. And I would say like this film probably to me is the most impactful documentary that I've ever seen personally. You know, it, it might not be the greatest one ever made, but for me, it it changed a lot of things about, you know, what I thought about life it definitely was an inspiration for me to travel around the world, which I did for a long time. Um, there are certain scenes in this movie that I have uh, stood in person and looked at and and been like, I can't believe that I'm actually here, you know, because I had seen this movie and thought, God, I wish I could like see that someday. Um, and, and, and it definitely is... To me, they're probably better films, like films that I enjoy more, but definitely the most impactful f- documentary film of my life. And I would say probably um, maybe even the film that made me really appreciate documentary films. So what did, you know, I'm very, so, very curious yeah. to hear from you because, you know, you've seen much more than I've yeah, seen. I totally get, I mean, I could see how, I wish I had seen this movie uh, when I was uh, probably your age when you saw it for the first time. So I loved it. I mean, it was uh, yes, pretty. yes. <laughs> I mean, it was. I mean, it was. 
it was uh it's really beautiful it's a tone poem you know it's uh interesting yeah i mean it's not a um you know it's it's a visual tone poem is what it is i think seeing it for the first time at my late old jaded age you know i don't think it's going to have that kind of an effect on my life but like it was definitely uh definitely blew me away i mean it's a beautiful film um and I can see how there's a lot of visual things going on in there that um, are still with us today in terms of cinematography and the way this film was shot. It's very naturalistic. Shot in 70 millimeter. Yeah. And, and, and we should say, I, I mean, this is one of the, the things that I wanted to talk to you about a lot because I thought one of the things, because you're a bit more of a sort of gearhead or technical yeah, guy technical, than I am. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things that's amazing to me about this film is just the way that it was made, because it was made in 1992, shot on 70 millimeter, you know, yeah. like just in, and in 1992 or 95, 96, whenever I watched it, it looked beautiful then, like unbelievably yeah. beautiful then. It and you could tell it was a, it was a level yeah. above like your regular 35 millimeter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, is that this, I don't know. So I couldn't figure out what i was watching it in i have a 4k tv and mm -hmm. i watched it on prime yeah i did too and i know that prime has some 4k stuff on there i don't know that this was in on there in 4k I, I, I guess it would probably say in the description of the movie i should probably look at that well what i was interested Amazon. in is this is the first the first film to ever be transferred into 8k yeah in 2007 yeah which and is crazy like uh, I'm sure a the lot Prime of the world had even. No, it wouldn't have been. No, they're yeah. not broke. They're not. Yeah. they're not streaming in. Eight. They are streaming in 4K though, and yeah. a good 4K transfer of this would be worth seeing. I don't think what I watched was 4K. I, in fact, I was a little bit disappointed in the way that not the film looked, but the like. I could tell there was a generational transfer that wasn't. Yeah, I think I watched the Prime one. This. So actually. Um, a, a few days ago, you and I talked about, you know, setting up watching this film and I yeah. watched it that night and I watched it of all places on YouTube, um, which I'm pretty sure is a pirated version on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I feel like the quality of that one was better than the one cause I watched it again today, um, on prime on prime yeah and i feel like the quality of the one on youtube was higher than the quality of one it on may prime. have been actually especially if it is a pirate of yours and it'd be funny i could even see these guys are such the guys that made this film are so um like the quality of the of their reproduction of their work is probably super important to them sure. i could see them sort of pirating their own film on the youtube a better quality <laughs> just so people can see that version you know, maybe because the version on on I was disappointed in however that digital conversion. It's either a digital conversion error or generational, like it was copied from older HD videotape or something. But it uh, it had a little bit of a weird flicker to it, and I don't know why there, that was. Or well, I, I happen to I was have hold to on right here next to me. Just just randomly, I actually still have this on DVD. I don't have oh, many wow. more DVDs, but this is the DVD. And this one is, well, it's definitely not 4K. No, it's 7. It's, but it's, it's probably SD. at least 720. Yeah, it's SD. It's Yeah, it might uh, even. Because 
all DVDs. They they didn't publish HD DVDs. Well, they tried to, but that wasn't the same format. So. Yeah. Um, anyway, I didn't want to digress into the. <laughs> it's There's just a lot of technical film stuff. Is to get so into this film, visually yeah. stunning that I, it's worth. It's really your best trying to find the best version of it to watch. So, like, if you ever get a chance to see this projected, that's probably the best way to see it. But they they did transfer this the negative in 8K over 10 years ago. I assume that was a good transfer. So hopefully it was in a format that they can, you know, that'll carry on into the future. But So one of the things when my, my friend first introduced this to me was that he couldn't really explain it to me and I could never really explain it to other people. You go, well, it's a, yeah, it's a documentary, but like there's no story. Um, yeah. And it's just it's just pretty pictures around the world, yeah. And that's a, that's a hard sell. That's not something. Yeah, that... no, of course. Yeah, it's a montage. Yeah, it's um, a very long montage. Yeah, yeah. But but it's yeah, it's a. I mean, it plays like a tone poem now, and it's very meditative. Like it, it's very. Yeah. Uh, it is a meditation. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a meditation. It's a very spirit. I feel like it's a spiritual experience, like watching it. Well, Baraka um, itself, the word Baraka, um, relates to it's. I looked it up, and it's. I can't exactly understand what it, it means, means, but spirit. it's something along, along the lines of relating to God or being at one with God or sort yeah. of being in touch with God. So I think that was sort of the underwriting theme of the film was, you know, being at one with the universe or, or yeah. of nature, something along yeah. those lines. Did you have any particular uh, moments that like really caught you, like visually? Oh yeah, um, several, of course. I mean, and every time I watch it, I, I keep you know, there's like ones that sort of stand out. Me, it, it I, this is a film that that bears repeated watching too. Oh, I've watched like, this, this is, so many times, and it's really you could just have it on in the background. It would be very calming, just to sort of like you know, be able surprisingly to today, I, I put it on in my house today, and. Yeah. Uh, my daughters, both of them, they're eight and five years old. They watched the first hour. After yeah. the first hour, they got bored, but they were in. They were in the first hour. Yeah. They were watching. Yeah, it. yeah, and it's it's only an hour and a half. Like it's ninety minutes. Yeah, so, um, that's more than halfway. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it was the same thing. Like last night, I put it on to watch it. And my and my wife was like sit sitting here with me and. I told her I had to watch this, you know, for, so I could talk about it today. And she sat and watched the whole thing. She was, like, very taken with it. It's hard to explain, but once you put it on, it's very hard to look away from. It's yeah. so, you know, you and I always talk about, you know, films being compelling. But this mm -hmm. is compelling in a weird way because it's compelling without a, a story to drive it, really. Yeah. But know? I think it sort of demonstrates that visually you can cinematography can build a character and a mood in a visual way it adds a dimension to the storytelling and this demonstrates it in that there is no they take all the story away and it's only the visuals and your mind's like making your mind's a, making the story yeah making stories for you you know you t i think about yeah. a shot there um, there's a guy on a subway platform. Um, I, I, I was trying to figure out, I think it's Hong Kong. Cause that's the other thing They're, they shot all around the world for this and they don't really yeah. label anything. So you don't, no, they don't exactly you know where, where you yeah, are in the world. Jump around too. Yeah. But I think it was in Hong Kong cause the writing on the back was Chinese, but 
and you just see this guy on a subway platform and he's taking out a handkerchief and it's it's shot in slow motion mm. and he's just kind of wiping his forehead wiping the sweat off and all these people are rushing back behind him and in that moment you're you make up the story for him yeah you know you go oh this, this guy well he looks tired you know yeah. he must have come off a hard day of work he's on this crowded subway you know you're you're telling that story and i think that's such an and I think every time I watch this, I tell the story a little bit differently, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, yeah, I, w- I keep thinking about, like, how the way they get the camera right up in people's faces and the way the... Um, just the depth and the f- way they frame faces, it, it creates a character, you know? Mm-hmm. There's that scene... I don't know. I mean, none of this stuff is labeled, so I can't really... De- I don't... I, some of it I recognized the specific places and some of it I didn't. There's a scene, it's all tribal men and they're all in a big semicircle. Mm-hmm. And they do that, that really, it's super intense, that whole chant. Yep. And they keep cutting to the close up of the guy. I, I, I assume he's the main chanter. He's calling the chant, it seems he's, like. He's sort of the patriarch. Yeah. 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 They keep cutting to him and that face and that character and the way he emotes when he calls. The chance it's yeah. just it's incredible. It's so and there's and that's just a single moment in there that's just like it's the humanity I think that it, they're capturing and it's and it's super subtle. It's 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 a lot like fine photography and and I could see one of the critiques of this film is that they're kind of um, using still photography techniques in a way and they are, but it's very cinematic because they do use movement of the camera to sort of tell the story in places and they, and they show there's things they capture in motion that just wouldn't have the same effect in stills, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's, it's pure cinema. I keep thinking about that. Like it's so like it, it it demonstrates on a really real power. Yeah. Yeah. A real visceral level, like the power of the visual and the music, really, you can't just count the music because the music is incredible and they do a great job of like the sound capture and mixing it with the soundtrack. And, and it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's literally a, a visceral experience watching this film. It's not a, um, it's, 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 it's as engrossing as any dramatic film could be. I agree. I think. So. so to go back for a second, the, I'm glad you brought it up, but that scene with the chanting, that's, um, you know, I've been a fan of this film for a really long time, mm-hmm. um, since 1995, however many years ago that was. And uh, that scene is the most famous scene of the film. You know, mm-hmm. if like, yeah, and, and if yeah, you, it's the most, yeah. yeah the, any clips why. online or stuff will be that scene. Um, a couple of th- things on that. Only because it's, I didn't just figure this out on my own, but only because it's the most famous scene. That was shot in Bali, in Bali, Indonesia, is where mm-hmm. that takes place. Um, but also, there are, I'm pretty sure Kanye West has sampled that chanting. Fr- oh, really? From that yeah. scene, yeah. Um, yeah, well, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, there's a very similar beat. It sounds almost exactly the same. Um I don't know for sure, but yeah. 
But the, hmm. that was the the most famous scene, and I love I love that one. In fact, when my daughters are watching it tonight, I, I when that scene came up, I was like, I love this. I I love the just the sound of it, the music of it. Yeah. And you mentioned the music throughout the film, and they did such a great job too. Of you know, there were scenes that didn't have any sound, so they played you know great music over it. But then there were scenes that involved a lot of sound, and they kind of you know weaved those into each other so seamlessly. Mm-hmm. That you barely knew it was happening, yeah. You know, yeah, like when great. those guys started chanting, it was coming in through an you know a, the scene before of like birds flying over a lake or something like that, you know, and it just slowly transitions you into it. Um, I don't know, man. I, I I can't say enough good things about this. Yeah, I've watched it. I probably watch it at least twice a year. Yeah, you know, since 1995. So it's interesting. There's a there's an interesting history behind this film. Yeah. I don't know all the history. I feel like maybe you know some things I don't, but um, I only know that this guy, the guy who made it, Ron Frick. Hmm. Um, is that how you spell, say his name? Is it? I think that's right. Ron Frick. Or is it Fricky? I feel like you could pronounce that Fricky. I've always that, said Ron that, Frick, so I'm just going to keep okay, it at Ron, Ron Frick. Frick. Okay. All right. <laughs> Um, I'm sure if I were ambitious enough, I could find out for sure. But um, so Ron, he worked with this other guy, Godfrey Re- Reggio. Reggio Reggio. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was his cinematographer. Yeah. And he made a film that, and and I I hate saying this because yeah. anybody that I've ever met that really knows Baraka that loves it, they always ask me if I've ever seen this film, and I haven't. And I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but it's Koyan Isikwatsi, Isikwatsi, something like that. Katsi. Well, that last, well, so Katsi. Katsi. Okay. Yeah, is the Q-A-T-S-I, Katsi. And that's a series of films. It was a series of films called the Katsi, like a Katsi series or something like that. Mm -hmm. There were like three of them. And a lot of people consider... Um, Baraka to be a Katsi film, like they're starting to use it like a, like a genre. And those Katsi films were big. They were all like yeah. scored by Philip Glass. You yeah, know, like yeah. I just yeah. haven't seen those. That's you know. Yeah, I haven't seen them either, and I feel like I, I should have at least uh, tracked down one of them before I you know started talking about this film. But <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go check them out for sure. Well, and I, I'm I think if you're, with, you know if you're interested in this. Um, this genre of documentary filmmaking, this non-narrative thing, I think Baraka is a good introduction to it. I haven't seen the other yeah. ones, and and probably I have so much emotional tie to Baraka that I didn't want to see the other ones. The, Baraka could be a good introduction to those films, and then yeah. also there's a there's a sequel to Baraka called uh, Samasara, I think it's called that um, that Ron Frick also made in maybe 2017, like quite a bit later. I'd have to look it up. Um, 2011, sorry, 2011. And so many years later, he made Samsara, which is a, a sequel, supposed to be a sequel to Baraka, which I've also never seen. What I wonder about the, a film like Baraka and this whole genre is how the fuck do they get these films made? Yeah. I mean, these are expensive films to make. I mean, you're talking about a lot of equipment. You're talking about traveling around the globe over and over and paying over again. Some, yeah, paying paying these guys that are high. You know, these are it's a crew of the best filmmakers in the world. Like you know, yeah. So 
you know, none of these guys have a day rate that are that's affordable by most people, you know. So how do they get the funding? Who pays yeah, for the funding is of these things? A multi million dollar project for sure. I, I, is there anything about the budget of it online? Uh budget was two million. Two million. Box office one point three. So it, it lost money. I mean, probably mm. with DVD sales and shit, it probably made its money back eventually. But. I well and they could they probably license that footage some of their footage too. Oh, I oh they do. I yeah. see it pop yeah. up and stuff all the time. Yeah. The, so the picture that's on money. the cover it, of the little girl like um facing through the leaves. Yeah. I I see that image all the time. Yeah. So they definitely license so, it. Yeah. So I I imagine it's probably made its money back off just footage licensing. <laughs> maybe that's um, maybe that's how they sell the you know, as they sell people on funding the projects as they say, Maybe. well, we can at least license the footage, you know, yeah. and, and you know what? They well, probably, honestly, they probably license a lot of the footage that they don't put in the film. Yeah. Oh, you know, certainly. They're out there doing like, you know, beautiful shots of sunsets and stuff and Coca-Cola will buy that for a certain price. So The couple of things. One is the fact that this was made almost, 30, well, a lot of it was shot about 30 years ago. So this film's right. actually fairly old. It looks, if you see a good version of it, it looks like it was shot yesterday. Oh, absolutely. It's just beautiful. But um, it's an interesting cap, uh, snapshot of the world in that period, in the early 90s. And there's so much of that in there that probably just doesn't even exist now. You know? Like, I feel like some of the tribal stuff is probably rapidly disappearing at this point there's probably not nah, that many I think it's of those probably people still there. around no i think there's a lot of it that's disappeared I, I don't think it's as you know it's in another 50 or 100 years it may not exist at all so you know? my my guess is you know okay there's the the tribal group the, the best way that i can sub describe them is that it's the one where the guy is using the comb to paint his face yeah. And they sort of follow that tribal group. Mm -hmm. My best guess is Papua mm -hmm. New Guinea is where yeah. I think that's happening. I was I thought maybe it was in Brazil, but could be. There's, could there's, that there's I mean that's how much I don't know. Is it could be yeah. Papua New Guinea. Yeah. It could it be in like Oceania South or South America. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, who knows how much those I mean, tribes are affected now and how... I think they're still out there, though. I mean, I think they're yeah. still... Oh, I'm sure I'm sure they are. I just feel like that's, like, endangered culture, though, you know? Yeah. Because those people are just, if, over time, are just going to get start getting assimilated into mo modern culture, and it's just, you know... Um, I don't know. So, anyway, so there's that. And then the other thing is, is, I don't think you could get access to a lot of that stuff now, you know? Especially the agricultural stuff. I don't think you could shoot that stuff now. Oh, so so that's an actually a good point. Is the agricultural stuff that we didn't even touch on yet? But yeah, um, you know, it occurred they to me that this movie, now. similar to two other films that we've talked about before, um, that have kind of scenes of animal torture, if you will. You know, like mm -hmm. you know the the scene of the chicks, yeah, going through the right conveyor here. belts and then the yeah. burning off their beaks and stuff. Yeah. That's it's something that it, I found it really upsetting, and I think mm -hmm. if you were really sensitive to those kind of things, you would find it really upsetting. Seems to be a theme in in documentaries that we watch that have like animal torture. See, my brother's keeper, they slaughtered a pig, and uh, what was the other? There was, there's one other one that I, I can't remember off the top well, of my head. Uh, Roger and me. 
Roger and me, right. Yeah. Murdering the rabbits. Film, yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you yeah. ever want to make a great documentary, make sure there's an animal torture well, scene a, in it. Maybe, the, I don't know. Maybe that's, uh, <laughs> you could start a whole conspiracy theory around that, I guess, um, if you wanted to. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just think it would be hard to get access to a lot of that stuff now, you know, and uh, probably, um, it, it, you know, there, there was there's scenes in there. And I feel like if you were to make a film like that today, um, like the places that they would choose to go, what would they look like? And I feel like, you know, there's like there's always a lot of war in the world, but I feel like now there's a lot more war in the world just generally. Um, I think statistically it's the lowest ever. Yeah, but I think it's, yeah, I think, but I think it depends on whether you're t talking about declared wars or just like. Fair enough. Who knows you know, places what of statistics tension mean on, on those kind of things. Yeah. So, and it just seems like there's a lot more conflict in the world now than there was then. And, um, you know, there was, there was a war scene in the film that I think the, that scene over the desert that was uh all the oil fields burning in kuwait yeah that was after, the kuwaiti yeah. oil fields that were yeah set on fire set after on fire. yeah um operation iraqi freedom or whatever yeah so i feel like there'd be a lot more i don't know it would be interesting to see somebody attempt to make a film like this now um and i think that the digital cinema cameras that are out now are finally at a level where they could do a project like this justice. I don't think maybe they were 10 years ago, but nowadays you could take like a, like an RE system or a red system out and capture. I'd probably do like a, like a big red, like 8K cameras, 12K camera or something and go yeah. out and shoot something like this. And it would be incredible. Um, but it's it's funny that digital technologies finally I feel like caught up with the state of art, the art of film. This is probably peak film shooting, you know, technology. Sure, because this was you know. uh, this was a, a was shot in seventy millimeter, which yeah, seventy millimeter never became a thing. You know, it never became a standard. Well, it's IMAX, thing. right? But it, yeah. but it never became like a, a um, yeah. You know what I mean? Like a public, you know, for public co consumption thing yeah you know, it was like yeah, it's always did. been sort of an exhibition format and sort of a big exhibition format meaning it was meant to be screened in really big state-of-the-art theaters and kind now, of blowing now, up now how much did of, you read about or notice the time-lapse photography in this film so i did some i knew a little bit about it ahead of time because i'd seen clips and some of the more famous clips of this film are from the time-lapse and i and I think that might be some of the stuff they've licensed as well, because mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of this I've seen before. But uh, it was pretty interesting. You know, they did all the time lapse also on a 70 millimeter camera, because why not? Uh, uh, and because uh, it's a pretty large format frame anyway, even for still photography. So, and they, and they, rigged up some special equipment to do it it would be so much easier to do time lapse now it's ridiculously easy to do amazing time lapse now sure uh, relative to then just because you know they were programming their time lapse equipment with like a like a mac a desktop mac and mm. now you could do it with your phone you know and uh but it wasn't like, just time lapse it was also and this is what i loved about it at the time because it was so innovative that it wasn't just time lapse with a camera in a single place, 
but the camera was on tracks and the camera yeah. was moving as it did the time lapse. Yes. So you yep. had to time the time lapse with the movement of the camera. Yep. yep. And they and like you said, they were all they were like programming it it in on a computer. Yeah. Yep. And uh and that stuff is incredibly easy to do now, even is if it you're really? moving a camera. Oh yeah. They have these robotic kits, you know, and uh you basically it, in fact, there's this one where you it's you basically just put the camera on this track, you point it in one place, you set your focus at that spot, you move it down to the other end, this is where I want it to end, and then have it do like a slow time lapse across, you know, a sweep, a time, timed type, time lapse sweep from one point to another. And you program it all on your phone. You hit start, and it just goes, and it's super easy. <laughs> it's like and it was so hard for these guys yeah. back then. Yeah, these guys. And they, nobody's they gonna had to appreciate that now. <laughs> yeah, I know because it's super easy to do. Because well, you know, whenever you're relying on like some technique that a machine does, the machine's always gonna get better than you. Over oh, time, absolutely. You know, so, um, but you know, these guys, the human element of of it was like sort of like finding the patterns that they looked for mm -hmm. in both the way they shot it and the way they edited it was just really incredible and then like doing it from the different you know focal lengths so you get these wide shots and then these incredibly flat close-ups of like city streets to the point where they're just and that's the other thing the time lapse the slowdown wasn't the only um, I mean, they did a lot of slow motion in this, but they did a lot of stuff that wasn't just time lapse where they just like sped up the film too, mm -hmm. where they just put the film in one place and just ran it and then, and then just sped it up in post. And um, that was pretty interesting. Wait, how can you tell that? It was just a way that the, I mean, maybe that was just another different time lapse setting that they did, but it looked like there were parts of it where it looked like they just sped up the film in, in when they they would have had to do a, a optical print speed right. up, but like that's what they it looks like that's what they did um and parts of it but maybe i'm wrong i don't know it could have been just more time lapse stuff but um yeah well, but what would uh, be the thing that would make you think that it was it was that and not time lapse like is um, it something that looks different about it you know, that's a good question because I feel like nowadays, maybe it would, now that I think about it, like technically it would have been a lot more work for him to speed it up in post. So maybe it was all time lapse. You know, maybe that was time lapse. I'm thinking of the other part of the scene where it's one particular shot where they're looking at, it, they're inside a mosque mm -hmm. and then the room fills up with people. They all pray and then they all oh, okay. filter out. And it has this kind of very organic. It's almost a beat to the scene, right? Like it makes moving in it and makes out, in and out. I, in and the out. thing I like about this really fast time lapses is it makes human movement and human behavior um, feel like an organism. Group human behavior, yeah, feel it like has a orgasm. beat to it, yeah. You know, and so like the whole crowd of guys coming in and then going out in that from that vantage point in that speed made made it feel like the crowd itself is an or a single organism. Absolutely. So. I mean, I think there's a lot about this film that makes human life seem like an organism. Yeah. You know, you see the, I mean, we're talking about the um, the uh, time lapse. And to me, the best time lapse shot in this film is 
uh, where they have the camera. They're in New York City, I guess. It looks like New mm-hmm. York City. And the, the camera kind of moves over towards a window. And then it moves outside of the window and kind of pans yeah. down. And then it just starts going into the time lapse of the, the traffic through the city. Yeah. Where the all you and really all you're seeing is lights. You know, you're seeing the lights yeah. move back and forth of the cars. Um, and that to me, and I, I think they made it sort of implicit. I think they probably were playing a heartbeat in the background, you know, where it's like yeah. it feels so, like because the streets look like blood vessels. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So it was, a, you know, there, there was more than one sense of that when they kind of made. But I think that's sort of the point of the a lot yeah, of the no. point of the film is that humans are part of the beating system of the earth, you know. Yeah. I think the film set up pretty well, like right in the beginning. If you watch again, I've watched this so many times, so but the first fifteen minutes or so, you don't see people. There's no people, right? It's just nature. And then the first introduction to people is cutting down a tree. Right. There's a, oh, yeah. a guy sawing a tree and you see yeah. this little shot of ants escaping from the tree. They're running down the tree while they cut down the tree and this tree falls and it collapses in the forest. Um, and then that is when they move into the people part of the story. You know, that mm-hmm. like, well, they, they cut from that to a very close up of like one of the, the tribal women mm-hmm. with just this face that's just like. Clearly, they're trying to say, what the hell are you doing to my natural world? And then the next shot is they're blowing up like um, mines in in a giant quarry, you know. So yeah. then it jumps into the human effect on the environment. So yeah. they're sort of, I don't know what you call them. It's definitely an environmental message to it, um, for sure. I don't know, know, but see, I don't, I never took it as, as a... As a, a preachy message, I didn't no, take not. it as a. No, this is the way things should be. It just sort of said, "This is the story of it. This is yeah. sort of what's happening," and I, I appreciate that. You know. Yeah. No, I think it's a no. I mean, but you. I mean, there's no denying it's an environmental message, and I think it's you know, and and they do have some, you know, there's some ideas they're trying to get across, and I think they get them across very easily. Very, you know, I feel like. Do you? The, the so idea, what idea? So I. What ideas do you think they were trying to hit across? Because I don't so, think they were. First of all, where where we got where we, we were talking earlier about how you know the crowds and human activity in the film looks like uh, parts of an organism. Okay, I got you. I think I, got you. I think that that was intentional. I think they wanted people to take the idea that like we as a human race are actually kind of behave as an organism, and we're part um, of the 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 beat of the planet if you will we're part of the planet and mm. uh and i think that that message sort of reinforces the environmental message i think in the film and that it's you know what you just just described you know or those that sequence of shots there's no mistaking what they're tr- they're saying sure and uh and i think if you take those two messages combined i think it adds up to like a little bit of a you know they're they're sending us messages but not like in a, I mean, because it's visual and it, because it's all just arrangement of scenes, um, I don't think it's, you know, it can't be preachy because the format isn't preachy, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. I mean, 
there was a couple interviews I saw with the filmmakers, and they they had very strong opinions about what they were trying to get across. Oh, did they and, really? Um, yeah. The only and, the uh, only interviews with the filmmakers that I've seen have been about the sort of production of it. They've all been yeah. about like the seventy millimeter and the moving cameras a, and stuff. So there's a twenty minute piece on YouTube that I found. I'll I'll try to link it in the show notes. But um, there's a twenty minute piece I found on YouTube, and the very last maybe five minutes of it is a interview with Ron Frick and he's really kind of waxing philosophical about what he was trying to get across in the film. So, and that, that's, I think that's worthwhile watching. And I don't think I'm, I don't think either of us are off bases with like our interpretations of what we saw in the film, you know? So. No, I mean, there's definitely, there's something there. I mean, when, like I said, when you start the first 15 minutes with just nature, then your intro introduction is a tree being cut down. The yeah. first time you see human, well, I shouldn't say the first time you see humans because you do actually see some of the tribesmen before that, some yeah. of the, the different tribes. Um, but the first time you're introduced, I, I, I guess, into modern society is with a chainsaw. Yeah. Um, apparently one of the crew almost got killed in that, that scene. And the tree cutting down scene? Yeah. Um, that was in Brazil, I think. And, um, the, uh, there was a, I guess they had shot, they were shooting, they'd spent two or three weeks in each place and there were two weeks in Brazil and they shot a bunch of these trees getting cut down and, um, for the film and. Uh, I don't remember if it was Ron Frick himself or somebody else. It was like early in the production. They, uh, he was really close to like one of the trees when they fell and it almost hit him. So, but nobody got hurt otherwise. I mean, nobody was hurt there. It was just a close call. But. I wonder how big of a crew they had and how much that crew had to rotate. I think it was about, I think it was four people. Four. Is that it? Yeah. From what I could tell, I mean... I think there was only about four or five people at a time, and uh, and it was like a sound guy, two grips, and a cinematographer. I think that's all it was. I don't know. I, I, I saw one interview, I think it was Ron Frick, saying that they traveled around the world three times, you know, because it took them about 14 months to shoot this film. Yeah. Yep. You know, and they're just traveling all around the world to different places. Um, boy, I still don't know how they got the money for it. That's what I'd always wonder about this film is yeah. how did somebody pay? How do you pitch this to somebody? How do you yeah. walk into a room and go, okay, I need $2 million. Here's what I'm going to do. I got really yeah. great cameras and I'm just going to travel for a year and a half and I'll come back and I'll just piece it all together. I mentioned earlier, like, there were certain spots in my life that I went to and I stood in those spots and I was like, I saw them from this movie. Like I originally yeah. saw them in this movie and very early in this film, there's a, a shot of terraced rice patties. You know what terraced rice patties yeah. are? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Kind of there's steep hills that have patties yeah. built down the side of them in sort of steps. And yeah. uh, I remember seeing that when I was like 18, 19 years old and living in the middle of missouri or whatever and going does that really exist somewhere in the world like is that really something that's on this planet that's something that i could go see and i was 
I was very proud to accomplish that, to stand one day later on the top of a terrace rice paddy and just look down and be like, hey, this is the same thing that I saw in Baraka. You know, like, yeah. huh. so it, it actually inspired specific sort of trips for me. Cause I'm like, I want to see something that looks like that. And, uh, and a few of them I did. Most of them I didn't because there's a lot of stuff in this movie. But So one of the things that I wondered, maybe you know this, because having lived in Asia for so long, had you ever been to China? Did you yeah. ever go to China? Yeah. Okay, so where do you go in China? Uh, just Shanghai, unfortunately. And yeah. Beijing a little bit. So there's a scene in the beginning, I don't know exactly where, somewhere in the first half of the film. There's a scene that looks like it's in China, but it looks it looks so like it looks so staged, like it looks like a costume drama the way they shot it. And I don't know if that's what modern China looks like anymore or not. That's one of the things I was wondering: is does that exist in China still? Like that? It looked like eighteenth people in eighteenth century dress, you know. Hmm. Um, I don't remember the particular scene you're talking about, but there yeah. were some scenes in here um, that, you know, this was shot in China in 1990, 1991, yeah. something like that. China's yeah. a very different place. So some of the scenes that were shot in China, to me, looked like North Korea. Yeah. And, uh, and China definitely doesn't look like that now. You know, That's since China I mean. opened up like to a, like a, you know, a capitalist economy... Thing- yeah yeah that's kind of what i was i was thinking of uh when i said there's stuff in here not just the tribal stuff but like yeah the stuff in china that that's just those are scenes that you just will never see again in china probably you know well not in china but those scenes i mean to me they looked exactly like north korea is what a lot of them look like yeah so you still see them in north korea yeah but yeah definitely not in china i mean and that goes back to your point of having somebody make this today, because if you go to a place like Shanghai or Beijing, very, very different now than it was back then. Even Seoul, where I lived, you know, compared to the early 90s, completely yeah. different planet. Um, so it'd be interesting to see somebody make something like this these days. Yeah. You know, like in the film, they used a lot of they used a lot of Hong Kong and Tokyo to represent uh, big city Asia. Yeah. But now big city Asia is so many cities, you know, it's not yeah. Hong Kong oh, and yeah. Tokyo. You could, you could make the same scenes in Seoul, Beijing, yeah. Shanghai, many other places that will look almost the same. You know, you get on the yeah. subway and, you know, and I used to do this when I lived in Seoul, I yeah, would can- like make little time-lapse videos on the subway completely inspired from this film by the way and i would just set up a camera at the end of the subway and make little time lapse videos um and you could you could do that for days on end and yeah you, know. you could do that in jakarta no oh j- certainly in jakarta yeah which you couldn't probably couldn't have done in you know jakarta probably like manila like, i mean yeah. singapore is like there's plenty of big asian cities that you could do that in now you know? yeah yeah it's it's i think maybe that's the most dramatic you know one of the most dramatic cultural things that are so different now. Right, because because you know, in this film, well, they don't show much America. I mean, they show some American scenery, 
but they don't show much American life. You know, they mm. don't they don't show many, you know, American people. So you don't get no, much sense of American culture from this. Yeah. Um, but I, I would guess that American American culture hasn't changed quite as dramatically as, dramatically, as, yeah. as Asian exactly. culture has over the past yeah. 40 years or no, I agree. Yeah. 30 years, I guess it is. Holy shit, 1990 was 30 years ago. <sighs> yeah, I know. Yeah, so this came out in 92, so this really was shot in like probably 90, 91. Oh, I'm sure, yeah, because I, I know it took them at least 14 months to shoot it, but I think it was another additional 14 months to edit, you know. So yeah. It was probably, gonna... if not 90, maybe late 80s even. And you can find this on the Wikipedia page, but there's also in the original booklet... There's a whole list, and I, I know we're an audio podcast, so nobody can see me showing this, but mm -hmm. um, a whole list of all of the locations from the film. Oh, oh. in the DVD. Yeah, in the DVD case. Oh, that's It nice. tells you all the cities. So back in the day when I used to watch this on DVD, I mean, I was like, I, I would sit there and look up all these places and see where they were and, and, and what they were about and, and try to match up like locations with shots. But... But that just lists all those places they shot. It doesn't do it in order. So you don't know, like, which place is which place. You just know that it's there somewhere, you know. So you can make a, an educated guess about, you know, that kind of looks like Hong Kong. So I'm guessing that part is Hong Kong. But um, some of it, when, especially when you get into South America, I get a little bit lost on, you know, you know, there's a scene of pretty early on in the film. They show uh, these sort of cinder block. What I'm guessing, I think it's in Brazil. So I, I'm guessing they're sort of favelas, but like mm -hmm. these cinder block yeah. homes. And yep. you see these like little kids sitting, yeah, I think that si was sitting outside of the windows on like the steel reinforced bars. Yeah. And then you see the boys like walking down the street with arm in arm with a soccer ball and stuff. Um, and I guess that's Brazil. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, yeah, I highly recommend seeing it. And if you can see it in, I can't recommend the, the prime version. No, watch, watch any version prime. you can watch. It's the kind of film that lends itself to a higher quality picture. Definitely. But I don't think, I don't think watching it in a lower quality version is going to take away from your experience of watching it. I think you can still enjoy no. it. I agree. still love it, you know. Yeah. Because well, I would love to, nothing more than I would love to do than sit in a theater and watch this thing in 8K on a big screen. That would be amazing, yeah. you know. The pirated version on YouTube is 1080. The official version on YouTube is uh, 1082. I bet this has never been released in 4K. Oh, it has. It has? It's been released in 8K. No, they I know they encoded it in 8K. I don't think they've released it in 8K. Hold on, let me see. There's all I read was that they they archived it for archival purposes. They scanned it in 8K in 2007. Okay, so following previous DVD releases in 2007, the original 65 millimeter negative was rescanned at 8K resolution. Yeah, and equipped blah blah blah. Produced over 30 terabytes, but does it say anything about a release? As a, at the time, Project Supervisor described the reissue of Baraka as arguably the highest quality. But so, but 
Roger Ebert described the Blu-ray release as the finest video disc I have ever viewed or ever imagined. Yeah, it was a 1080. <laughs> you know, did you ever hear, did you read the other uh, quote from Roger Ebert on the Wikipedia page? Mm-mm. You know, they always have a reception section on the Wikipedia page. Yeah. And yeah. they always quote Roger Ebert on there for some reason. <laughs> And he says, if man sends another Voyager to the distant stars and it can carry only one film on board, that film might be Baraka. Wow. I don't think it's ever been released in 4K. Maybe not. Maybe not. Sim Sarah has been re- avail- is available in 4K now, apparently. Yeah, and, I, and one of these days I'm going to catch up with that, Samsara. Yeah, as of 2019, neither one or uh, Baraka has not been released in 4K. So that's crazy. This it's been scanned to 8K and it hasn't been released yeah. anywhere. Yeah, well, I think they were future proofing it. I think they probably uh, thought that. Yeah, I don't think people understand. Well, there's a couple things. One is I don't think people completely understand like how ephemeral even film is. So. Um, there's films that were made 30 years ago that the original negatives don't exist for anymore. Right. Which is hard to imagine because there's thousands of copies of this film out there. And almost all of them are in some of these films, the ones that are... Um, there's a lot of really crappy VHS versions of it, of it in the world, but like the original negatives don't exist. So I think what they were probably doing in these guys being the guys that made the film being tech heads um understood that like the if there were only a few of the original negatives but there's really only one original negative for any film and so i think they probably just thought it would be safe a safe bet to go ahead and scan it in the highest possible resolution they possibly could at the time just for future proofing releases of the film you know i imagine there was a bit of that and a bit of the the people who were developing the technology at the time yeah, um, saying, hey, we need to test this technology. What should we test it on? Oh, here's this beautiful thing shot in 70, K- 70 millimeter. Let's do it on yeah. that. Yeah. And really all like back then it wasn't, I mean, it sounds like they were way out ahead of the future in terms of, you know, scanning something in 8K. But if you think about it, they were really just like scanning that film in 8K was really probably just nothing more than a matter of, shooting each frame as a 8k scan you know and uh it took him three weeks to do it so but um which existed at the time that resolution of a top photograph existed even that resolution of video didn't exist at the time so um because at the time in 2007 like the world was just getting ready to move to hd there was still mostly most production was happening in sure in sd so um so the world was getting ready to make the big switch to HD at the time, and here they are scanning it in, in 8K, you know, which, you know, 4K wasn't even a thing yet, you know, so it's pretty cool how they were looking ahead like that, you know, so. Well, but I would, I'd, it's really surprising it hasn't come out in 4K. Maybe they're getting ready for some kind of big release. I wonder what, uh, the end of, the 30th anniversary of it is 2022, so maybe that's what they're waiting oh, for. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, I'll say this, um, I'm I'm so happy you liked it because 
it's always my pleasure whenever I can introduce you to something you haven't seen because you, for the most part, you've seen a lot more stuff than I have. So it's mm-hmm. usually you, you know, introducing me to stuff. So yeah. when I can introduce you to something that you like, I, I get very excited about it. So yeah, I'm very. And you can only like imagine that. how disappointed I am when I try to introduce you to something that you don't like. <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you talking about uh, the Bastards of Baseball? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was actually. You can only imagine how you you mentioned how my disappointment is as equal as your excitement. (laughs) But you, but you know, I thought about that because you mentioned when we talked about that that um, that it was something you would go back to frequently, like whenever you felt like it was a feel good thing for me. And that's exactly what this film is for me. That's what Baraka is for me. It's like if I'm feeling bummed or down, I'm like I'll I'll throw on Baraka and I'll just sit there and I'll be good. Yeah. I, I think movies, I think that's what one of the things that we like about movies, you know? I think that's what the, you know, what people in general like about movies is that it's a, you know, it's escapism and, you know, sometimes you need escapism and cer- and, these days. So. And I can, I can definitely say that this film connected with me at a certain time in my life that where it just connected. You know, like yeah. if, if I had seen this today for the first time, I probably wouldn't have been as impressed, you know? But it it hit me at a certain time in my life where it had a major impact on it. So it has a lot of sentimental value to me, you know. Yeah. And we all have those, you know. We all have the particular films from particular eras that impact us in different ways. Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's like books and songs and, you know, people, I guess. All right. Well, Um, we're we're well over an hour now. So. uh, Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about our idea for you know how the how we might do, be doing some episodes in the future. Yeah, do you um, want to talk about it on the podcast or off? I don't know. Why don't we talk about it and then if it's not something that belongs in the podcast, I'll cut it out. Okay, that's fine. I'm fine with that. Um so um just in case we use it in the podcast. We had this we we were chatting the other night. And we and we and I came up with this idea where we randomly we randomly select a, a subgenre and we have to go out and find what we think is the ultimate example of that film or a good example of that film, I guess, and sort of explain what the subgenre is about, what it's trying to accomplish or whatever, and then sort of say why that film is a good example of that rather than, I don't know. So you so give me an example. What would you say of a what would be a subgenre? So like we in in that particular chat that we're having, um, we talked about hagiographies, which is hagiography, right, right, which is really kind of a subgenre of documentary, right? So uh, and there's dozens of these weird little, you know, you've seen like two or you know a half dozen or more films that are sort of in this, a particular style. Another one is like health nutrition film, a nutrition activist film, or uh-huh. just activist films, or nature films, or BBC documentaries, or um, Nova documentaries. Those are, those are brands, but they're also kind of a style of documentary. Sure. That, you know, um, or, I love um, Nova. Or like uh, corporate films, you know, which are, really in a lot of them are documentaries, you know, so corporate documentaries, corporate promotion documentaries, uh, documentaries about music festivals, for instance. So do you want to do something? Hold on. Hold on. Let me back you up a second. 
We're gonna do best corporate documentaries. Yeah, why not? Because like I, really, like I can't not think best, of a not best. One. No, not best. But like we sort of uh, we have to find a good example of one. Not a be- not best. Like just like it could either be your favorite do- favorite one that you really liked, one that you think is a, just a really good example of that genre, or really well made one. You know, for that genre, um, or just like you maybe you just throw up your hands and you're like i couldn't find one but this is the one that everybody watches or whatever right or this is the one that everybody so you're talking about we each come with one film though it doesn't even have to be good it's just a significant example of that genre but what you're saying is we would each come with one film yeah and And, well so we do it one of two ways you suggested we both pick the same genre um uh, I suggest that we sort of like roll the dice and we sort of get random oh, okay. genres. Um, so each of us, each of us comes with a different genre, brings our own example. Yeah, okay. I think, and we could split the hour and a half. So we, okay. and it, so we each get like maybe ten minutes to sort of set up, explain what the, the genre and then why you picked this film, and then what is good or bad about it or whatever. And then you could do a little cross examination, and it doesn't have to be a cross. It just be like a little discussion back and forth, right. and then we go to you, and you do your film, and then we do a little more banter and about it about your film. I don't know. It's just I thought it would be kind of an interesting way of structuring this podcast in a different way. You know, the way I at least maybe I'm- every few episodes. We could do I this. mean, let's try it. Why not? I mean, you know, this whole thing is sort of a fun experiment anyway. So, you know, yeah. let's play with the format. And if it's if if we if we get a good episode out of that, why not? You know, yeah, we'll, we'll pick. I mean, we'll have to figure out the logistics, how to, you know, let's figure well, out. Well, I think that where we start is we just come up with a list, Genres. a random list. Of genres and they don't have to be top line genres. Really, more obscure the better. No, because I like to, I like like because one of the things you were saying like is a genre would be like Earl Morris films. So even that could yeah. be like a you know yeah. And we could so we could have so we I think it should be a, a random list. So it could be everything from a really challenging genre like corporate films oh, right? or Jesus. company documentaries huh. to ver to gimmies like like Errol Morris films. Yeah, right, right. Which would be a gimme. Man, that'd be fun. Us, so. Well, let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. Do you want to do an ending to this podcast? Or I think I think we ended it. I don't know. Okay. I think we ended it. It's a great film. Yeah, Go I... watch it. <laughs> yeah, all, right. all right, buddy. See you.